Coming to you from WUGA in Athens, Georgia, this is AquaThread, a podcast that illustrates the connections in our world from land to water to people and everything in between. We work to bring you new voices and often underrepresented perspectives on many intertwined topics. I'm your host, Jenna Jambeck, an environmental engineering professor at the University of Georgia, In each episode, I'm joined by a rotating set of co-hosts, mostly in their early career. This episode, I have Dr. Amari Walker-Franklin, research chemist at RTI with me. How are you doing today, Amari? I'm doing great, Jenna. I actually, I straightened my hair for the first time this year. And for context, everyone, I have very curly hair. Uh, So I'm dudging and, you know, ducking and dodging humidity and rain this week because I did not look at the weather. Uh, But, you know, other than that, staying busy with work and some fun science outreach. Cool. We have that same humidity and rain in Georgia, too, right now. Um, So I saw not too long ago you were at a large conference in Music City, Tennessee, which sounded fun. What a great town. How did that go? Oh, it was really well. So I recently attended the Society of Toxicology, its national conference in Nashville. And it was first time in Nashville, which is always, you know, fun to go see. And I was just shocked at the number of people that are finally coming back to conferences. We had about 5,000 people in attendance. So that was quite impressive, especially for the first time for me to go to that kind of conference, because I was learning more about the research for, for toxicology. And I'll say that my background is mostly analytical chemistry. So the fact that like I was learning about different methods that people use to understand how a pollutant or a substance can be toxic to the human body was just a huge eye-opener. Like, like, you know, the differences between animal testing versus in vivo cell toxicology to now that we have these organoids on a chip, I, it, it was just, you know, what, a, what an eye-opener. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun to learn all these new science things and travel somewhere new. But I also saw that you were making some big national moves as well. You've been in Minnesota, right? Yeah, I was. And I'll talk about that in a second. But I just thought of something going to this conference mentioning 5000 people. So are you the type of person who gets energized going back and being around all that many people again? Or were you totally like exhausted at the end of the day? Or maybe it's both. But I'm curious how you felt, you know, getting back into that conference mode. It's so conference dependent. If I have been to the conference before, and I already have a set group of people that I can know and talk to, I think I can get energy from that kind of conference, but because it was, everything was new, the people were new, the conference was new, the science was new. Um, it was, it was a bit exhausting. I think by like day four or so, I was like, okay, this was great, but I need to go home and go sit in a corner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh, I totally get that. So thank you for sharing. So yeah, I was recently uh, invited to do a two week visiting professorship at the University of Minnesota Morris. So for those of you who don't know, Morris, Minnesota is a small town of about 5,000 people in west central Minnesota, just under an hour from the South Dakota border. There, the University of Minnesota has a branch of a small liberal arts college uh, that has a program to host various professors from other institutions. As you may recall, I have grown up in a small town of about 2,000 people in Minnesota, so I really felt quite at home there. Even though I'm an engineer, I fit into many of their programs, so I guess lectured in environmental studies classes, an environmental justice course, and even geology. I also gave a public talk and got to attend a performing arts show there, too, which was amazing. It was my kids' spring break, so they got to join me for the first week. 
uh, where there was still like 15 foot snow drifts on the ground and then a blizzard <laughs> that same week. And then the next week it was all of a sudden 60 degrees. Um, so the weather was a little crazy. And the second week, my husband and 14-year-old son went back to Georgia, but my 12-year-old uh, was able to stay stay with me another week and keep learning uh, while being in Minnesota. So not only was I doing a lot of teaching, uh, but I got to see so many of the cool sustainability initiatives they have there. The first thing you notice, uh, because it's a prairie, so it's like really flat, but they have lots of wind turbines. So I don't know if people know, but the Midwest is home to a lot of wind energy, we see it each year. We make our drive to Minnesota from Georgia, um, especially in Illinois and, and Iowa, and also lots of solar. So I see solar in Georgia, too, but in Minnesota, they're putting in what they call agrovoltaic because they put the panels high enough so that the cows can use them as shade and so they can still use that field for grazing. Uh, they also have a really cool zero waste goal, and they're moving towards it by putting in compost and recycling all over campus. And this is also spread to the town itself. Um, so there's a composting program in the county. And so the city, the county, and the university all work together, which to me seems like the only way that these kinds of programs can really work in such a small and rural uh, area. So uh, during my time there, we were also using our circularity assessment protocol, or CAP as we call it, to document what they're doing and to collect data to further support their work. So... Although this was a temporary appointment, I kind of felt like a new employee in my time there, which is very different for me. I mean, I've been at UGA for 14 years now. So um, so speaking of relatively new jobs, I know you're hitting your one-year mark at your current position. Do you feel like you're all settled in now? And, you know, what's what's happening? What's your favorite thing currently? Oh, well, it's funny you asked that question because... I actually had to answer it this week for a video interview to celebrate RTI International's 65th anniversary. Quite a long time for a nonprofit to be around. So now I actually feel a little ready to answer you because it was a it was it was a fun time to answer it. Um, but you know, I am so happy working at RTI. I feel like I I know just enough at least at this point with one year to figure out like who to contact or where to go to kind of figure out the rest of the unknowns in the organization. So I'm I'm really kind of just getting my feet feet settled and in my place in within the org. And then I have a lot of really interesting projects and I still get to do research on my favorite topic, which is microplastics. So I can't complain. I love the, the variability, but you know, I think that is actually my favorite part of RTI is the opportunity to do so many different kinds of things that I had never thought of, but are so relevant to improving the human condition to understanding what's happening in our environment for types of contaminants that we need to monitor and remediate, like PFAS. Uh, so I can say I've never been bored since I started. That's so great. I'm so glad to hear that it's going well and you're enjoying it. I, I have to say I feel very similarly about, about my job, too. It's always a big variety of work to do uh, that makes it quite enjoyable. So today we have a guest that I know very well and have worked with for many years in marine debris and plastic pollution space, Kara Lavender-Law, who's a research professor of oceanography at the Sea Education Association. I first met Kara when she was the lead of an international working group that I was able to or invited to join at the National Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis, or NCES as we call it. 
Uh, I had immediate respect for her science and leadership. She had already published the first paper on the floating estimates of microplastic in the ocean and science. And since then, we've collaborated on a variety of projects together over the years, including the 2015 Plastic Input into the Ocean paper, the Plastic Production paper in 2017 with Roland Geyer, and most recently, her leading the U.S. Mismanaged Plastic paper in 2020. I'm happy to say we have some new U.S.-based work that will be out hopefully in the coming year or so as well. And I think we have very complementary skills or gifts, as I might describe it. Kara, I've always admired your writing and have learned so much about science writing for communication and papers and more from you. Um, I've also really appreciated your leadership in the groups uh, where we've worked together, especially at NCs. I think that was a huge task that no one could really quite understand the experience you had there. Uh, I was so grateful for all your work and so excited to have you join us today to chat about a variety of things. So I'm wondering as a start, if you can give us a bit about your background and what might be fun to hear about, I was thinking, was your start in plastics, um, but you started through oceanography and then how you ended up working on projects that included everything from, I know, polymer science to waste management now. Thanks, Jenna. And hi, Jenna. Hi, Amari. It's really wonderful to speak with both of you today. Um, Yes, we've known each other a long time, and I'm going to go back even farther in time to tell you about my background, because I like to start from the beginning, um, because when I was growing up as a kid, I loved math, and I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, and I think that sentiment, I have no idea what I want to do with my life, really held for many decades until I've ended up where I am, and I will second that, uh, or third, I guess, that notion of never being bored at work, because there's just such a variety of things to think about when we think about plastics. Um, so, so I did start off as just a kid liking math and I went to Duke University as an undergraduate and I was a math major because I liked it. I was good at it, but again, had no idea what to do with it. And I was fortunate to take a semester at the Duke University Marine Lab, really just to sort of change things up a little bit, get a different perspective on my undergraduate education. And that introduced me to the field of oceanography. I came back to the main campus and was fortunate to take a course with, uh, Dr. Susan Lozier, who's a physical oceanographer. And that set me on a path to graduate school to get a PhD in physical oceanography, which is the study of ocean physics, um, things like ocean currents and the transport of heat and uh, chemicals and other contaminants or properties around the ocean. So um, I left with my PhD from Scripps Institution of Oceanography and moved to Woods Hole to do a postdoc and eventually made my way to Sea Education Association. We're a small nonprofit uh, educational organization that runs the sea semester program for undergraduates. And at that point in my career, I knew I really wanted to teach. I'd always wanted to teach, um, never quite um, was ready to do teach high school. I felt too young when I graduated college to be teaching high school. And so eventually made my way um, to SEA to teach undergraduates who came to come to us for just a semester out of their college career, much like my experience at the Duke Marine Lab. And we take them out to sea on tall sailing ships where they do undergraduate research. So our students, SEA has been around for over 50 years now, and our students in collecting data for research projects across the entire community that's sailing on the ship, um, tow a net called the Neustadt net. And it's towed right at the sea surface for about 30 minutes. It's actually very easily handled by a single undergraduate. And then we watch it tow for 30 minutes, bring it back aboard and dump the contents of the net into a sieve. And our students spent a lot of time with their eyeballs and, and lights in the lab picking out um, organisms that are of interest for the student research projects, counting lots of different things, 
but also pulling out um, bits of tar and also bits of plastic. And as early as the late 1970s, our students and scientists have been finding plastics in these uh, plankton net toes. So uh, I would say about the mid 2000s, when we started hearing a lot about the garbage patch, this mysterious floating island of recognizable trash items um, within SEA, within my organization, we realized that we had this real treasure trove of data that our undergraduates have been collecting for decades. And that a chief scientist named Jude Wilbur had the foresight to start um, sort of recording and saving those samples in the mid 80s. So I found myself in sort of the right place at the right time with um, an, an applicable background with ocean physics to uh, lead a, an analysis of that data that was largely compiled by Sky Murray, a former student at SEA who was also working on the ships at the time. And so that was really my entree into the plastic space was analyzing this decades long data set on floating microplastics, um, now called microplastics. At the time when they first started being collected, they were just plastic. Um, and so that, uh, you know, that that set me on the course of trying to understand how much plastic is out there and, and where it is in the ocean and how it got there with that ocean physics background. But over time, my interest just really expanded to asking questions about where is it coming from, what are the major sources, and further and further upstream. That is so interesting. And I got to say, I see a lot of similarities or symmetry in some ways, because I did a summer internship at Scripps. Uh, my background for my undergrad degree was marine science at UC Berkeley. <laughs> and then um, you know, it's great to be, meet another fellow Duke alum, you know, thank you for having, you know, being here, Kara. Uh, so I've not only, you know, heard about all the work, but I've also read quite a few of those, those really landmark papers um, for your work. And I always wanted to ask you what it's like to do science that people in the policy space um, have so much interest in. And then also, you know, Jenna told me that you are both at the G7 and G20 meetings and even had a one-table senator dinner recently, which is impressive. Wow. Uh, and so I know you've also testified to Congress several times as well. Do you ever expect your work to get that much interest? And what has that been like for you? Yeah, it's definitely been an interesting path. Um, so I'll say, you know, especially coming from SEA, where sort of internally our, our group of faculty scientists and students had known about this problem for decades, when I first entered the space and we published that first paper on the amount of plastic floating in the Atlantic, I didn't anticipate a huge amount of interest. And our actually motivating colleague, Chris Reddy at Woodsell Oceanographic Institution had made a bet that that there, it would end up a news article in the New York Times. And I said, you're crazy, nobody cares about this. But of course, over those past you know 10 or 15 years, many people and many different communities care a lot about plastics in the ocean and about policies to try to stem that flow of plastics, not just to the ocean, but to the environment more generally. Um, so it's, I think that's actually a large reason why I'm still doing this work. I'm still really interested in the ocean physics, in the transport of plastics and the sources of plastics. But I think because it really is such a societally interesting and complex topic, that's what's kept me engaged over time. Um, we did get a tremendous media response to that first paper because at, at that point in 2010, everybody was talking about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch as if it were a singular thing, when in fact there are really five parts of the ocean that collect plastics in a similar way, and, and the Atlantic being one of them. So I think it's it's an interesting case, and I, I'm not a science historian, but I think in my next life I need to be 
because I think this is an instance where public attention and concern came largely before the science, or at least in parallel with the science. There have been people, of course, studying this topic for sort of in fits and starts over decades before the most recent interest in the past 10 or 15 years. Um, but I don't think it was until people really got riled up about garbage patches and microplastics that the science got a push and that the funding agencies got behind it and then the policymakers becoming involved. But I think that's why my interests have moved upstream. I mean, I'll always be interested in the in the gyres and the quote-unquote garbage patches and, the, and what's happening there, but to affect change has to happen much more upstream at the at the people level at the policy level. So it's been very gratifying to see that attention, you know, coming up. First, I think in Europe with the G7 and the G20, and now we're seeing lots of attention in the United States too, and that's that's a good feeling. I think it's so interesting. You said uh, when when you said you were talking to Chris Reddy, and you're like, don't you know? Nobody cares about that or this. And that's exactly, remember, what the marine scientist said to me when I said, I want to study this issue. And it was, I think, true. That was back in 2000 for me. So, um, you know, it was definitely true then. But we have seen, you know, the care and the interest grow, I think, as we see plastic pile up in the environment around us. So speaking of that, Kara, I love that your interest in solid waste has grown over the years, I think, especially because that's where kind of my roots are with environmental engineering. And I remember this kind of steeped into your personal life and service to your community. I think you served on your community solid waste board or some commission for some time. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think this just ties into why the plastics topic has been interesting to me for so long. You know, back when I loved math, I was also an avid recycler. My mom was really good about teaching us about recycling and washing out every last speck of peanut butter in the peanut butter jar. So when we moved to Maine, which is where I live now, um, I I did join my, my um, town's recycling committee. So it's a town appointed standing committee. And I actually just stepped down this year after I, I termed out after nine years. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. um, it's a group of, of citizens in the town who are working hard to promote, you know, sustainable practices around waste. But um, it really, you know, so I had an interest on a personal level, having always been a recycler and sort of ended up in an environmental field. Uh, but this gave me much more practical insight into what happens to the trash that I make and the, the recyclables that I put in the blue bin. And, and I got to visit my um, my MRF, my materials recycling facility, uh, which is actually a cooperative nonprofit here in Maine, which has a slightly different model than what most people experience. But I really got to see, you know, watch that truck dump the load into the MRF and see how the, the trash gets separated and then a big piece of the committee work is engaging the community to, of course, um, you know, enhance our recycling participation. But that includes really hard communication about what goes in the blue bin, what doesn't, the importance of contamination, both financially and how the waste gets processed. Um, we actually worked a lot in this in the elementary school in town to try to to enhance waste separation in the cafeteria. So separating um food waste from recyclables from trash and and that was actually a really frustrating activity because it's just a complex thing to try to convey of what goes where and why and and in a very time compressed situation with kids who want to make sure their class doesn't leave the cafeteria without them so 
it really has given me very practical insights into our waste and just how local, I mean, down to the level of a school or um, a workplace or a town or a community, um, the issue of waste is. And so I think where where my my research interests have kind of merged with my practical interests, that's where I like to sit now is, is figuring out practical solutions to some of these big problems. It's so important. And I feel like there are so many different age groups that can learn this process, even, you know, even though it's complicated, it's it's so necessary to start, you know, raising future generations towards what does recycling look like? What does plastic pollution look like to even your earlier comment? What is a gyre? You know, I feel like everyone should just have a small little lesson on the great conveyor belt of, of water movement around the world, because I think people don't know that water doesn't stay where it sits. Um, have you done a YouTube on that yet? I should. Okay. <laughs> Put that up. It's great. Well, when I speak to when I speak to like school groups, I use um, plastics as my my way to sneak in some physical oceanography 101. It's a, it's a really good way to grab people's attention and to teach those basic science concepts. And in fact, I think that is why at SCA we've had so many undergraduates over the decades work on what we call the plastics project, counting those plastics in the Newstown nets, because it's something that we can all relate to, understanding that this is something that. We're tied to in our daily lives and that simply should not be out floating in the middle of the open ocean thousands of miles from land so i think it's a really good hook absolutely and i mean speaking of which you're doing a lot of work you know mentoring not just students but you know other early career um, oceanographers so i was wondering if you could tell us more about why you decided to be a part of that and what you know what is why is mentoring so important to you yeah, well, I, I mentioned earlier that um, when I was at, came back from the Duke Marine Lab, I took a course with Susan Lozier, and I've been really fortunate to have her as an outstanding mentor starting from those late college days. So she's formerly of Duke, now a professor and dean of college uh, of the College of Sciences at Georgia Tech. She's also the president of the American Geophysical Union, and she's a mom of two kids. And so I over the years have had a great touch point of somebody who had a life that I could imagine myself living. And there were not many examples of that. So she actually started a mentorship program for women in physical oceanography. I, I tried to find the date. It's been at least 10, 15, maybe 20 years ago. I'm not exactly sure. I was invited to um, in a discussion to help sort of figure out what that program might look like. And since then I've served as a mentor to early career women in physical oceanography in a, a few different mentorship groups. But I also really put a high priority on trying to be a mentor in all aspects of my my science career and my life. So um, whether it's talking to individuals about, you know, what the landscape might look like for them with their backgrounds or just sort of being an example to people to see women doing the kinds of work that we all do. Um, I put a high value on that because I think um, you have to be able to ima imagine it to to do it. And so the more of us that are doing it and can be out there showing people what we're doing the more examples there are. That's so great. I'm I'm so glad that you said that, and that's part of the reason for this podcast as well. Um, so we have collaborated on a lot of different projects over the years, and I'm curious, do you have like a favorite um, or something that you found most rewarding about some of those projects? You know, I think... I've worked really hard to try to take on projects that I hope will be rewarding. And it's often those that are most challenging that in the long run end up being the most rewarding. And so Jenna, you talked about our NC's working group. Um, I think we were a little bit 
I won't say ahead of our time. I think we were at the right time, but we were really asking very basic questions in a place where there wasn't a whole lot to start from. And so even for the group to figure out what direction are we trying to take our work, that was very challenging. And then the reward is seeing the impact of that work, right? So the the plastic input into the into the ocean paper that you led, um, I think was it changed the way I think about doing research. I think when we we started that group, we had basic questions like how much plastic is there in the ocean? And, and that's somewhat of an impossible question to answer, right? We can't go out and sample every part of the ocean globally and, and count things. And so it was really a different sort of mind frame to say, well, how can we try to get at that answer? And, and we use that or we approach that that question, or at least about the inputs using waste management data without having had a single measurement of anything in the ocean. And so the fact that you can even get a number on that, um, it was, and it was, you know, are we talking 10, 10 tons, 100 tons, 10 million tons? Really, we were looking at just a gross sort of inventory and a, a gross idea of the level of plastic that might be going into the ocean. Um, and then I think that's also been interesting to see how that plays out, because once you produce a number, people tend to, to stick with that number. And of course, it's not the right number. It's not a real number. It's it's an estimate. And so I think that has really set on um, set off like a, some other challenges in figuring out how to communicate about that work. But also, how do you how do you make that number better? Um, so I, I think that that really that the NC's group. And the NCs, the work that came out of that group was challenging in the moment. It obviously was impactful, but it also has set up some new challenges that I think are continuing to, to be um, addressed in the field. Absolutely. I think a lot about, you know, especially with starting the YouTube channel and writing the book, even like, how do you communicate science that you know is, you know, can be conservative of, of estimates or you know, because people just want a plain number. They want, you know, this is definitely happening in the human body or, you know, this is definitely harming this animal. Um, so it's always been kind of a, a balance for teaching people, you know, this is concerning. There are things that we need to do. But, you know, the science is not going to give you absolutes because nothing is an absolute, you know, well, other than, you know, taxes and death. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And I, you know, and I appreciate people's desire for a number, right? We started the conversation with my interest in math. And I think the kind of work I like to do is really analyzing numbers. I love data. I think had I, if I were going, if I were starting my undergraduate career today, perhaps I would have ended up in a data science career because I think that's just fascinating. I love visualizing data, communicating. So I, I appreciate those desires. And, but it's so important to also have that sort of context of what what does the number mean? Where did it come from? How much confidence do we have in that number? Does it mean that it's complete garbage? It doesn't mean that it's perfect. It's always going to be somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> That's how I feel about it a lot. I mean, I'm still working a lot in the lab, but I, it sounds like you kind of are moving a little bit away from that um, or even field work itself. But do you would you still want to be in the field and in doing work as well if you're thinking more like you wish you did data science? Oh, it's an interesting question. I love being in the field. And I did sail um, as a chief scientist with SEA for six years, but but I did um, become a mom and that that made that no longer possible. And that really coincided with the time that 
this work in plastics ramped up. And, and at that time, it was, it was a data analysis exercise to take data that our students had collected for decades and, and analyze it. And that's really the path that I've been on now for more than a decade uh, is really desktop science. Um, it's, I've never really been a bench scientist. I, there's, there's a reason I didn't go into chemistry. It just was not the thing that really excited me and biology required too much memorization the way that I was learning, <laughs> you know, learning biology back in the yep. day. Um, so I do, I do really enjoy that the desktop science, but I love being outdoors. I love being in the environment, experiencing it. It's a different level of observation of, of the, the things that we're trying to measure and trying to analyze. And I do hope to get back out into the field, um, eventually. Would love to help get you out uh, collecting some litter data in transects. I think you would enjoy it just because we have so many similar uh, interest in data and and partly seeing that right in the field is, is fascinating. Um, okay, so now I want to kind of dive into some personal things. You, you brought up a little bit about, you know, how the field work changed when you became a mom. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of people know us as names on a paper, um, but I, I like for people to hear things that, that humanize us. So we both met our husbands at our respective places of work, I believe. For me, it was at the landfill, um, but for you, I think it was on the sailboat. Just tell us more about how that went and how things are going today. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I think many people meet their spouses at work or in their course of study. My my husband, Jeremy, showed up on the Robert C. Siemens, which is one of SCA's tall sailing ships, um, after leaving the Coast Guard. So he actually came on board as a mate on the ships. And I was the chief scientist. And, um, you know, we <laughs> the, the interesting thing about Choosing a career on a sailboat, being at sea for six weeks, is that that's a pretty good filter for people that you have something in common with. So, um, so yeah, we met in uh, 2004, and we got married a few years later, and we had kids a couple years later. And around that, because we were both sailing, once we started a family, we had to figure out a different way to pay our bills because no, neither of us was willing to go be at sea for six weeks at a time with a, with a newborn. Um, so I actually, that's when I, uh, became more of a, before the pandemic became a remote scientist and we followed my husband's job in interestingly renewable energy. We started off at the beginning of the conversation mm -hmm. about, solar and wind in the Midwest. And um, that's what his company does is develop solar, wind and um, and battery storage projects throughout the US in the renewable energy space. So, so that brought our family to Western New York for three years where I was really very remote from the coast and remote from SEA. And then um, his job brought us back to the East Coast to Maine where I now have, have lived and worked mostly remotely for the past 10 years. Um, and now we have two kids. So it's it's worked well for me because I I describe myself as having two three quarter time jobs. Um, I'm not full time at SEA and I'm not a full time mom, but I'm three quarters of each, and it works um, on a daily basis. There's always struggles to figure out where to put your attention and what is going to require your attention, whether it's the kid's dentist appointment or that proposal deadline. Um, but I'm fortunate to be able to work from my home, which really makes you know, one and a half jobs possible. Mm -hmm. That's so exciting. Gosh, I think I think we all have kind of similar stories then because I met my husband in a conference. We were just talking about conferences earlier. <laughs> right. Um, I met him at the National Society of Black Engineers Conference 
in California, right, right in front of Disneyland. We didn't go at the time, but he proposed to me at Disney World. So it was full, full circle turnaround. That's so cool. <laughs> That's great. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's so, you know, so rewarding to see kind of like the life journey you know, from beginning to end. And, and right now I'd say I'm pretty much at the early career stage for myself in doing things like just purchased a house and moved in. I'm trying to volunteer with different science societies and then figure out where am I going to, you know, publish manuscripts on top of the day-to-day commitments with my job. So I, I really am wondering what kind of advice you might have for someone like me in their early career for this space. Oh, that's, it's such a hard question. You know, I think, like I just said, um, in the moment, there are a thousand priorities that maybe are trying you're are drawing you in one direction or another. Um, you know, for me, I think I have tried to pursue projects that are interesting that I think are going to be worth my time. I don't. I, I I've come to realize over 15 years in this space that my nemesis is waste. Every way that you could possibly describe that <laughs> word, right? So, um, but including not just sort of solid waste that we don't know what to do with, but um, but wasted time and wasted energy because I don't have a lot yeah. to waste. I don't have a lot to spare. So I think just sort of picking picking those um, things that you're going to put your time towards carefully and and um, recognizing maybe when you've gotten a little bit too overcommitted and trying to pare back. Um, but you know, when you're young, you have a lot more energy, so don't hold yourself back either. Uh, but it's, it's great. Congratulations on the new house and on the job. So I think some of those stresses perhaps of where am I going to live or what is it I'm going to do to pay my bills, hopefully are diminished in your mind. And you can focus more on those things that bring joy and bring value to your life and your career. Absolutely. Thanks. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad the PhD is done. So, <laughs> oh, Yes. There there is nobody that doesn't feel that way when you finally get that, that piece the, of paper. The <laughs> adrenaline from that can last for a few years, that's for sure. Being with the high. It's a that. tremendous achievement. It is a tremendous achievement. You know, that's a commitment in itself to get a PhD. And I will say for anybody considering that, it doesn't mean you have to go into the traditional tenure track field. And that's that's one thing I really try to convey back to the mentorship question is you're the one who controls your life and where you're going to put your time and energy and talent. And the PhD is wonderful. I learned so, so much through my PhD process, but I think it, you know, it opened doors that I didn't know would open and you just have to keep looking for those doors when they, when they pop out in front of you. Mm -hmm. Well, both of you are absolutely perfect and wildly successful illustrations of that. Okay, so I want to I want to go to uh, another aspect um, that we share that we've bonded over, Kara. And when I was first invited to NCs, I had a six month old baby, and I chose to bring him because I was still nursing, and so I brought my mom. And you know, basically, I would leave to nurse him, and and I know you helped find a spot for me at NCs to do that. And um, it was I wasn't sure how that would be perceived, and then you know, you were leading the group and then you got pregnant with your second kid and, and, you know, had the baby there and we're doing kind of similar things. And I, I just was wondering how you felt like that went, how did that work? I mean, I think you already, you know, you've already talked a little bit about how you balance things. And to me, it's like a pendulum. And I think you just referred to that too, when you're like, you kind of realize when you're overcommitted and then you kind of swing back. But I'm just curious, sort of like that was in the workplace 
but more than the workplace, it was like a group of people getting together. And here, both of us had to, you know, bring infants and manage a lot of those things. I just wanted to hear your reflection on that. Yeah, so that was um, just about 10 years ago, probably this this fall, that um, that baby Sam and my mother came with me to that meeting. And, you know, it's challenging. And infant's challenging no matter what you're doing in your life, no matter what your job is, whether you your job is simply taking care of that infant. So adding in, a, you know, a complicated work trip and a, thankfully the working group when I brought Sam was well underway, um, whereas when you brought Barrett, it was definitely <laughs> earlier stages. Yep. <laughs> um, I but at least I wasn't leading day it. Day by day, mom. What's that? At least I wasn't leading it. You were you were having to lead, so that's why well, it, true. it was a little easier yeah. for me just to be meeting people and be like, oh yeah, I also have this baby. <laughs> Although if I had a baby and was going to the first group leading it, like I wouldn't have been leading it. Right. <laughs> um, you know, something, one thing that I've noticed since that time is, um, Amara, you mentioned going to SeaTac in Nashville. I went to that meeting, I think that same year, and um, I did not bring the baby or my mother, but I was still nursing and I was carrying around this cooler with ice packs. And I remember having to sit in an airport bathroom to pump and now at least you see these pods like at least there's a little bit more infrastructure out there in the world that you know you don't have to hide behind a curtain hoping nobody's going to walk in on you if you're trying to you know carry around a breast pump and whatnot but it's challenging but it's a short period of time and um you know i think parenting and working or if you're taking care of elderly parents or any kind of caregiving it's day by day moment by moment you just have to focus on what's needed and and just trust that you'll get through it. Um, and there's a lot of joy. I mean, I have I have fond memories of some of our colleagues in the NC's working group holding the baby and buying him a little stuffed turtle that we still have. And, you know, my mom having the opportunity to walk around Santa Barbara pushing a baby around, which yep. is, you know, a, kind of a nice place to be in the middle of winter. Yep. <laughs> so you have to kind of focus on the... I think on those small moments that are are positives and just work through the the drudgery of pumping in the airport bathroom. I have been there too. <laughs> I gotta say hats off to all moms, grandmas, and just caregivers. That's that's not not easy, especially to balance all the rest of work and life itself. Man. <laughs> it's make it's what makes life rich, right? Yep. I mean it's every day's different. It adds the rainbows in, in the clouds, you know. But I guess to kind of switch a little little back towards science and science outreach, um, I saw that you're also part of launching the Sea Plastics Lab website that uh, launched in, I think, just about last year in 2022. And I was briefly on there, and I got to say that the plastics quiz was a fun part of the website, and I'm, I'm glad that I passed. Thank goodness, or else my PhD was for naught. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, can you tell us more about that website and, you know, the resources that are on there and who the intended audience is for? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. Um, so I've been working with my research associate, Jessica Donahue, for more than 10 years at SEA, and she's really been the one that's done the hardcore lab analysis of all the plastic samples that our students have collected over decades. And, you know, we've published papers and and um, we do a lot of public speaking, but we felt that there was really um, a gap in sort of anything on the web representing the breadth and 
scope of of our work at SEA on plastics. And so we were fortunate to receive funding from um, the March Marine Initiative, which is part of the March Limited Foundation out of Bermuda, to hire three summer interns last year. And so we had three amazing women come to us with different backgrounds that included collectively marine science, science communication, public relations, um, some had social media expertise, some had website design expertise, and one of their major projects was to work together as a team to create that web presence. And that's what became the SEA Plastics Lab website. And our goal was to make the information that we collectively had within SEA and our plastics research group available to any audience, um, you know, from from the elementary school kids or the interested public all the way through to people who want to pursue research in the sim a similar field. So the plastics quiz, it was meant to engage, you know, sort of make it a fun engagement tool for anyone. And I'm glad you passed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that hard, but, um, but it's, you know, in intended to also teach people something maybe they didn't know already. Um, so you can read there the story of plastics research at SEA. You can see some of the educational materials that our group has created over time. Um, we have a data portal that is on the brink of launching. We still have some technical details to work out where you'll be able to access the floating microplastics data that we've collected in the Atlantic, the Caribbean, and the Pacific Ocean over decades. Um, and there's, you know, obviously the sort of more traditional, who are we, what's the kind of work that we've published, um, and what do we focus on? So I'm tremendously proud of our group of interns who you can find on that website um, because they really brought talents and skills that we did not have in-house to the design of a visually appealing website. They really helped create the structure, help tell our stories, create, I mean, I never would have thought about doing a plastics quiz, right? Um, and so, and yet they also had the sort of scientific street cred. They, they understood the importance of conveying the scientific, scientific information accurately um, and not putting out broad generalizations and not, you know, sort of overselling. Um, so that that's our goal really is to have this be a, a place where people can come and get, get really solid, well uh, backed up scientific information on the plastics problem. This it's such a great resource and um so excited for the data portal to happen. We're gonna post the link to the website in the episode notes so you too can see how you do on the plastics quiz. Okay, so for our final thought, Kara, part of the reason we bring guests in is to hear different perspectives. We know that systems, large systems, will only change in a just and equ equitable way if we have representation of perspectives and, and voices at the table. So we ask a similar question to every guest. So in terms, for you, in terms of plastic pollution, what voice do you think is either missing or would you like to see more amplified in this space? And then I guess as a second part to that, how do we make that happen? So this is a really great question, um, and there's not there's not an easy answer because the the plastics problem broadly is something that touches everybody on the planet in one way or the other. We all use plastics. We all create waste. We find them in our environment to greater and lesser degrees, many different types. 
And so I really, as I sort of mentioned a little bit earlier, take a very practical approach to some of these things. And, and my answer is, well, well, what is the thing that we're trying to address and who needs to be at the table? And a lot of my work now involves talking to people in lots of different communities, whether they are academic, different types of academic communities like chemical engineers or polymer scientists or people who are working in waste or people who are working in environmental science and I or or toxicology. Amari, you mentioned that that was like a big piece that you had had learned about in, in attending this recent conference. And I think we so often work in these very narrow bands of expertise. And a lot of what I try to do is bring those different groups together. Um, and then, you know, if you're working on something that's a local solution, like our recycling committee, um, for instance, years ago, now there's a, it, the state of Maine actually has a, a ban on, on single-use plastic bags and polystyrene foam and food containers, but we had passed local ordinances on those, on those things. And a big part of the committee's work was to go talk to the restaurants who were going to have to deal with, you know, putting takeout food in different containers or changing the way that they, um, you know, handed out bags and things like that. And so it was a matter of, in our community, trying to identify who was going to be impacted besides the consumer. And then, of course, there was a big um, consumer outreach. But but it just depends on the community, right? We can't just take what worked in my little town in Maine and go to some little town in a completely different part of the world and expect that to work. So so it, I think the the, you know, who has to be at the table, it has to be one of the first questions that we ask when we are starting a new project. And it's just going to depend on, you know, what that project is and where you are. Um, and I think too often we just sort of drop in and figure out that, well, we're just going to go do our science or we're going to help you with our solution without talking to the people that are going to be directly impacted by it and who have perspectives that are really different, right? They can be different geographically, different because their expertise is different or their life experience is different. Um, and so I don't think there's a single answer, but it's a question that needs to be carefully considered no matter what direction we're taking. I love that. I mean, I, I think especially about moving from, you know, Berkeley, San Francisco, California, where they are petitioning on the streets to just make huge changes for, for bag bans, you know, limiting things. And, you know, we had already moved to reusable containers. Uh, so I've, you know, they were just so far ahead of the times. And that was, gosh, six, seven years ago. And then moving to North Carolina, where, you know, everything's kind of starting from scratch, and there's different perspectives, and, you know, different views that you have to be respectful of, um, to kind of work people towards a common goal of creating our world, you know, to be a better place. So it's, it's tough work. And gosh, I just want to thank you again for all you do. Um, and, and, you know, for all the incredible work that you've been working on over the years and just being such a wonderful role model to these future generations of STEM leaders. And I want to thank you for all your contributions in this space, uh, for our continued collaboration and also for the friendship. Thank you again for taking time to talk to us today. Oh, it's been so much fun. I, I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope that we can continue doing this in many different venues. Yeah. And to all our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your day to join us on the AquaThread. <laughs>